1: Welcome to Colloquium. On this episode, we dig into what is a SPAC and why are they suddenly so popular? Already in 2020, SPAC investment has soared above $40 billion, and it seems like they're in the headlines every day. I sit down with Dr. David Patton of Navigation Capital Partners to go over what is a SPAC, what is their history, what are the regulations around them, why are they suddenly so popular. What are the advantages and the disadvantages compared to IPOs or private equity? What the investor journey looks like and the different ways to invest in the SPAC. I'm Brian Adams. I'm the founder and principal of Excelsior Capital. We are a private equity real estate sponsor platform based in Nashville, Tennessee. And we purchase commercial real estate investment properties on behalf of a network of high net worth individuals and family offices and Independent RIA boutique wealth management firms, and really trying to do three things make sure that we're preserving capital, providing a good, steady yield, and then taking advantage of all the tax benefits that come with direct real estate ownership. This is a webinar series that we started doing roughly six months ago during the pandemic in order to provide people with some educational content about what's happening in the world of finance. And I would say that SPACs are definitely having a moment. Right now, we could throw out a bunch of numbers. Dr. Pan will be in much better position to get them right. I'll screw them up, but it seems like they're in the headlines every day. So why don't we go ahead, do introductions, and then we can jump right into some of the questions that I know a lot of folks have.
2: Very good. Thanks a lot, Brian. Appreciate it. And welcome everyone. My name is David Panton and I am a partner at Navigation Capital Partners. We're a private equity firm, private equity based firm based in Atlanta, Georgia and we are focused on investing in the metal market. But three years ago, we set up a SPAC operations group focused exclusively on investing in SPACs, which stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. And that's what we're here to talk about today.
1: Yeah, so I think it'd be helpful maybe give us what you use as a definition of what a SPAC is, and even more helpful maybe what it isn't. And then I kind of want to get into a little bit of the history and where we are today versus when this first came onto the scene?
2: Sure. So SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. So a SPAC is a company that has a special purpose, and that special purpose is to do an acquisition. That has been extended a little bit, and so what we refer to is when a SPAC does an acquisition, it may also do a merger with a company. But the very basics are that a SPAC, a Special Purpose Acquisition Company, is a company that is listed, publicly traded on an exchange like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, and all it has is not operating assets, but cash. It raises cash into the company. It then has a set time period in which to use that cash to effect a business combination, which is either an acquisition or a merger. And then at that point in time, the company that it's either merged with or acquired, the operating company becomes a normal way publicly traded company. So a SPAC is a public company with a purpose of acquiring or merging with a typically a private company within a certain period of time in order for the private company or the target to become a public company.
1: And what is the history? We don't need to go into kind of full details, but I know that this investment vehicle or way to access public companies has been around for a while. It was kind of in vogue. 20, 30 years ago maybe, and now it's become de rigueur again. If you could just give us a high level on the history, because I think it's important to give people context.
2: Sure. So SPACs were created actually by David Nussbaum, who's an investment banker in New York with a firm called Early Bird Capital, which is an investment bank which specializes in SPACs. Uh, they were actually the underwriter of the first SPAC that we did. And they created, uh, David created that uh, entity in 1993. So there is a prohibition against what's known as a blank check company in the United States. A SPAC is effectively an exemption against listing of blank check companies. And SPACs have been around between 1993 and the present. There have been over 500 SPACs that have listed on public exchanges in the United States. And those 500 plus SPACs, it's like 550, have raised in excess of $100 billion dollars. And what has happened is, in the early stages of SPACs, they were relatively small, uh, meaning there were less than $100 raised in their IPOs. Uh, The regulation around SPACs were not very good, so many people abused SPACs. So SPACs were, in the past, uh, literally a four-letter word and and, and sort of had a tarnished reputation. And then over time, the SEC made a number of changes, and SPACs have become much more well-established today. And so the size of SPACs has increased over that period. In the first few years of SPACs, they were under 100 million in the amount raised. Today, that number for the year 2020 is around 380 million. Is the average size of a SPAC uh, in the past five years? It's been over 200 million. So the, the size sizes increased in SPACs. You've also had an increase in the quality of people who have participated in SPACs. Probably the best example of that is Goldman Sachs, which is actually, we're working with Goldman Sachs currently on underwriting one of our SPACs. They, five years ago, five or six years ago, literally had no relationship with SPACs, wouldn't do anything with SPACs. And not only have they changed that policy, but they have now become one of the leading underwriters of SPACs. And they have also become the first bulge bracket investment banking firm to underwrite and not just underwrite, but to sponsor, not one, but two SPACs. Another good example of that is the New York Stock Exchange, which is a firm that we have partnered with at Navigation Capital. And the New York Stock Exchange did not list a single SPAC up until as recently as three years ago. So the first SPAC that listed on the New York Stock Exchange was in May of 2017. And since that time, the New York Stock Exchange has listed in excess of 60 SPACs. And this year, they are actually number one in terms of listings by volume of SPACs. So SPACs have come a long way from being a relatively, as you said, uh, a class that was not that favored by many persons, considered to be uh, a little bit on the outside of the mainstream of capital markets, to being straight down the fairway. And, in fact, so far this year, of all the IPOs that have been done, 40% of those have been done by SPACs. That's up from 3% as recently as two years ago. And in April of this year, 80% of the IPOs in America were SPAC IPOs versus traditional IPOs. So SPACs are here, and we believe, as Stacy Cunningham says from the New York Stock Exchange, that they're here to stay.
1: Very helpful. And you know, when I was preparing some questions or doing my homework uh, on this topic in advance of of speaking with you, a saying that my mother-in-law has popped in my head, which is, if you're old enough to see the same fashion trend come twice around, you're probably still too old to wear it. So maybe go into a little bit of why are they suddenly so popular now? Is it the timing? Is it the regulatory changes? Is it the management teams? Is it the the market that we're in?
2: Yeah. So so there are various reasons we believe that specs have sort of become to the fore today. One of those is actually related to supply and demand, right? So some of your listeners may know this and understand this, but the number of public companies in the United States has actually gone down dramatically over the past 20, 30 years. The peak in the United States of the number of public companies was approximately 8,000, just under 8,000 companies, and that was in 1996. Between 1996 and the present, the number of public companies has fallen dramatically. It's fewer than 4,000. So there are around 3,700 publicly traded companies today in the United States, and that's out of a a universe of 3 million companies. So it's a very, very small percentage of, of public companies, and that's reduced. And over that same time period, the number, the amount of money going into the public markets has increased dramatically. We're talking on the range of five to six times, primarily driven by the growth in exchange traded funds or ETFs. And as a quick aside, the very first SPAC ETF, unsurprisingly, was launched just two days ago. And that will be the first, I suspect, of several. And our firm, Navigation Capital, is currently working on doing an ETF. So we will be uh, part of that trend, a SPAC ETF. So that's one reason is that you've had this decline in the number of public companies. And the exchanges make money by bringing on new companies. And so there is this push by the exchanges, by NASDAQ, by NYSE. We've actually partnered with the NYSE, as I've mentioned, to help bring more SPACs to the market. So that's one factor. A second factor actually has to do with the private equity industry. So the private equity industry, what's known as dry powder in the private equity industry, is approximately $2 trillion. It was 10 years ago, $1 trillion. It's doubled. And dry powder is the amount of money raised by private equity funds that's available to invest in in private equity, but has not yet been deployed. And so you have this huge increase in... Amounts of capital in private equity. The number of exits has actually fallen. The returns in private equity. So private equity used to be sort of like SPACs. Oh, this is just a fad, private equity is just here. And that was four trillion dollars ago. Today there's two trillion in dry powder and two trillion invested in SPAC portfolio companies. So now it's a well-established asset class. And unfortunately, what has happened is over that time period, the number of private equity backed portfolio companies has grown from fewer than 2,000 in 1996, today to 8,000. And most of those companies are leveraged and they're looking for a way to exit. And one of the best mechanisms for an exit is an IPO. And one of the quickest, fastest, cheapest mechanisms for exits is a SPAC IPO. So ironically, the growth in private equity has actually in part spawned the growth in SPACs. Mm-hmm. And then the third factor, is actually regulatory changes by the SEC to SPACs. So as I said earlier, SPACs didn't have a great reputation. Part of the reason was that there was very little regulatory oversight. The SEC has stepped in, they made a bunch of changes, fixed the price of every SPAC IPO at $10, ensuring, which I can get into later, that the vote on a SPAC business combination is separated from the right to redeem. That's led to significant changes. And as a result of these regulatory changes, A number of great sponsors like Goldman Sachs and others have gotten into the space, and so it's become much more established. And those changes in the regulatory environment, as well as the participation by well-established names and sponsors, most recently Bill Ackman of Pershing Square, who raised the largest SPAC IPO so far, $4 billion. The influx of these has sort of led to the mainstreaming, for lack of a better word, of SPACs.
1: Okay. And I will remind people that there is a Q&A button at the bottom. If they have specific questions for David, go ahead and, and put them up there. I will try to address them when it's timely to not interrupt his flow, but I will try to, to get to all of them. And he has actually specifically requested only very difficult questions. So let's <laughs> make sure to give us- well, There's some.
2: one question so far from, <laughs> from Robert Volta. Yeah. He says, can SPACs acquire more than one companies? And the answer to that question is yes, SPACs can acquire more than one companies when they go public, uh, it's probably not a good idea. The the most number of companies that have been acquired by one SPAC is a a SPAC called GTY Technology, and they acquired six companies at the same time, which was a record. Before that, I believe the record was two. So they went from two to six, and they are a very, very good group. They focus on software companies that are focused on the government sector. So government-focused software companies, federal, state, uh, local. And they bought six companies. Difficult to do. And uh, the investors in that SPAC were very sophisticated. They've been at Accenture, which raises a point about SPACs, which is typically SPACs are sponsored by individuals, typically former CEOs or CFOs or very senior investors who have a track record of buying companies or running companies. And those individuals then go about... They typically have a period of time, which is typically 24 months in which to buy a company. They can buy more than one company. 99% of SPACs buy just one operating company. But then subsequently, those SPACs will engage in effectively what's a roll-up strategy or a consolidation or a buy-and-build strategy where they'll buy numerous companies subsequently.
1: So you alluded to this, but I'd like to get into a little bit more. Could you spell out the difference between... A SPAC transaction versus a traditional IPO versus a traditional, you know, private equity leveraged buyout scenario?
2: Sure. So in a SPAC IPO, a sponsor will take a company public listed on an exchange, which has one asset, and that asset is cash. And that cash is used to go out and buy one or more operating companies within a set period of time. If, within a set period of time, they have not done that company, then the capital is returned to the investors in the the SPAC IPO. In a traditional IPO, the biggest difference is that there is an operating company that is being taken public. In a private equity transaction, that's a private company being sold to a private equity firm. Typically, there's a lot of leverage involved. And so the advantages, which is very important to understand, of a SPAC, so why would a a person who had a company sell to us back, right? Or merge with us back or sell to us back. Well there are a few reasons for that. Uh, One is, as opposed to private equity, the as a general principle, public companies trade at much higher multiples than private companies. And that's largely because of the liquidity premium associated with publicly traded companies. So that's one reason they want a higher valuation. But the other reasons are related to potentially control. If you sell to a SPAC and you are an owner who has a significant stake in the company, instead of selling to a private equity firm who controls that company, uh, you can sell to a company where you retain a significant stake in the company. And there have been several examples where sellers have sold to SPACs and have retained a significant ownership interest in a SPAC. Another reason to sell to a SPAC is that you want liquidity. If you were to sell to a private equity firm, then that private equity firm you're sort of at the behest of the private equity firm. In a SPAC, you now have liquid security, you could sell some down, you may be able to keep all of it, but if you decide you have a problem, you can sell because you have greater liquidity. Compared to traditional IPOs, and this is another factor that has led to the growth in, in SPACs, is that to do an IPO is very expensive. It costs tens of millions of dollars. A large part of that cost is paid by the SPAC already, So the company doesn't have to pay that cost. So it's cheaper to do a SPAC IPO. Typically to do an IPO, a traditional IPO, it could take a year, two years, and it sucks up a lot lot of management time. There are a number of SPACs recently which have come to market where they have merged with companies or bought companies. And the process, because they have to publicly disclose this, has been as short as two or three months. So they met the company and two or three months later, boom, the company is public. So if you're a private deal company which wants to go public, a very quick mechanism of going public is through a SPAC IPO. And then a third advantage versus the traditional IPO process is related to certainty. So if you're doing a traditional IPO, you're going to hope that when you come to market, the window is open. People have heard of the IPO window being closed for various reasons. And you also, there's uncertainty about valuation. You go to a whole bunch of, you're on a roadshow with a whole bunch of investors, and you hope that they give a valuation that you want, but they may not, and you may leave money on the table. The advantage of a SPAC IPO is that you identify that valuation ahead of time. You agree on the valuation. Typically, you do a limited roadshow with a small number of investors, and you raise capital from institutional investors if needed in what's known as a pipe, which is a private investment in a public entity, a pipe. It's effectively just raising capital, to bring capital to close the transaction if it's needed. And you've set the valuation and the success rate of SPAC pipes is very high. It's close to 100%. Whereas the success rate for individuals who filed an S1 which is the document that needs to be filed with the SEC to register for an IPO, that don't eventually do the IPO is, very, is, is relatively small. It's certainly lower than 100%. And so there is much more great certainty that the transaction will occur with a SPAC. And there's also much more certainty that the transaction will occur at a certain value. So if you're a private donor and you want, the advantages are that it's quicker to do it with a SPAC, it's cheaper to do it with a SPAC, There's more certainty that the deal will close, and there's more certainty that the deal will close at a valuation that you have agreed to. And those are big advantages.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this might be too simplistic, but the way I kind of think about it in my head versus private equity is that the capital stack or or the financing mechanisms are almost inverted. Instead of levering that company up, you're actually injecting a lot of equity on the front end as
2: opposed to debt. That's a great point. So when the what used to be known as the LBO market, which is leveraged buyouts, was started in the late 70s and early 80s by firms like KKR, many people said, oh, this is a fad. It's going to go away. These people are levering up and it's very difficult. The one thing they got right was that it was levering up. They got wrong that it was a fad and that it was going to go away. Today, there's $4 trillion in private equity. It's a well-established asset class. SPACs are very different. SPACs are not about leverage. They're, in fact, more about equity, as you correctly pointed out. right? It's about putting equity on balance sheets. And as a result, we think that SPACs actually have a very long future. Some people would argue that SPACs are a trend and a short-term trend and are going to go away. We believe that we, we're in the very early innings of SPACs, and one of the best ways to think about that is versus private equity. So private equity, which is leverage-based for the most part, you know, many years ago, people said it's just a fad. Today, it's $4 trillion, of which $2 trillion is invested in companies, and $2 trillion is in dry powder. The dry powder in SPACs today is $50 billion, which is a record. It's the highest it's ever been. The, number, the amount raised in SPACs this year, which you know is currently over $40 billion and will end the year probably at $60 billion, is a record, much more than last year, which is only $13 billion. In fact, it's more this year, so far this year, than the previous five years combined. So a lot of money raised in SPACs. So people are like, oh, SPACs are a fad. But SPACs at $50 billion in dry powder represent 2% of the amount of money in private equity. And we believe the money in SPACs is far better currency than private equity because it's equity, as you correctly pointed out, that you can put up balance sheets. Equity to help companies grow. So if you're a late stage company, which many recent SPACs have been that are trying to raise capital to grow, SPACs are a great alternative because they're providing equity capital. But also, if you are a private equity company, portfolio company, and you know, I said earlier, there are about 8,000 private equity-backed portfolio companies in the United States today. That's up from less than 2,000 back in 1996, most of which are leveraged. You have a pipeline of highly levered companies which need to exit, and many would like to de-level. A SPAC is a great mechanism to delever level for private equity companies. So this constellation of stars have aligned very well where you have a number of private companies that need capital for growth, need equity, need to do it quickly, need to do it cheaply, and need to do it with certainty. SPACs are a great option. You have these... Private equity companies, which are highly leveled, which need to exit, many firms are late in their investment period, they need an exit, they prefer to have it done quickly, they prefer to have greater liquidity, and they prefer the advantages of a public market where they can get a high evaluation, and SPAC solved that problem. So SPAC solved the problem for a number of different categories of firms, which make it, we think, very attractive and gives it, we think we're not just in the early innings of SPACs. We think we're just getting warmed up in SPACs, which is one of the reasons we've committed and focused that navigation capital exclusively on SPACs.
1: Yeah, it's a great overview because there are a lot of moving pieces and we have a ton of questions. Some of them are very detailed. Before we get into them, could you illustrate to us, and this goes to Adam Dretler's question about timing and identifying the acquisition beforehand or not. What does the investor journey look like if they're going to invest with a group like yourself? What does is, what is that mechanism look like? What does the vehicle look like? And what is that timeline, expected returns, return profile, eventual liquidity, all those things?
2: All right. So one good way of thinking about SPACs, and one thing I didn't focus on, but it's, it's critical to understand about SPACs. One feature of SPACs is that when a sponsor group takes a company public, in a SPAC, they offer units, not shares. And those units include shares, and they also include warrants, and sometimes they include rights. And all SPACs go public at $10 okay, per unit. So if you are an investor in an, a SPAC IPO, it's actually one of the best investments I think of any investment category. And obviously I'm biased, but I think I I defend that very, very strongly. I think it's objectively true because SPACs have a feature which almost no other investment category has, which is that if you invest in a unit in a SPAC IPO, you invest $10, that money is put into a trust account. That trust account is managed separately from the sponsor while they look for a company. And when the company is found a target for a business combination, as I said earlier, at that point in time, the investor in the unit, the IPO investor, has a right to get their money back. So they've invested $10. The money is typically invested by the third party, like Wilmington Trust, for example, in treasuries. Not only do you get your money back, but you get treasuries. So you get a pretty good, the only risk in that regard is opportunity cost. You could have invested somewhere else. So that's a phenomenal investment for the IPO investor, where you have a right at your discretion to get your money back. So that's very attractive for the IPO investor. For the sponsor, there is more risk involved, but more return. The risk is basically that if you pay for a SPAC, so you pay for the expenses of taking your company public, you receive a 20% promote. So 20% of a $200 or $300 million SPAC is a lot of money, much less than the costs uh, that are incurred in taking the company public. And those returns historically have been 6X. And one of the reasons we were attracted, over 6X actually, uh, cash on cash return for sponsors. So on a risk-adjusted basis, we believe sponsoring SPACs is quite attractive. And that's one of the reasons we set up our firm, because we believe we can offer those returns to our investors. So IPO investing, pretty much no risk if you decide to redeem. If you don't redeem and you stay in the company, there's risk because the company may do well or not. If you sponsor, there's a risk that you find a company. Or not. If you don't find it, you lose all of your capital. But if you do find it, you could do six, seven, eight times your money and on a risk-adjusted basis that historically has been around six times. And then the third area is related to that fact that I mentioned that investors in the IPO have a right to get their money back. So the converse of that, someone has to pay for that on the other side. And who pays for that? Is the sponsor. So we sponsor SPACs, we sponsor our own SPAC, we go to market. we then say to companies, we have two hundred or three hundred million dollars, which is sitting in a trust account. But the reality is that money technically belongs to the investors, and if the investors take it back, then we don't have two or three hundred million dollars. So we face what's known as redemption risk, and that's the single biggest risk for sponsors outside of closing risk. So sponsors face two risks: closing risk, and the second is redemption risk—that people take their money back. And so what most spacs have done is they backstop or provide insurance against redemption risk by raising capital through a pipe. And I saw one of your question was, is a SPAC IPO the same as a pipe? It's very different. A SPAC IPO is done upfront to raise capital on the public markets to create the public listed vehicle that has a certain time in which to buy a company. A pipe is once that SPAC has identified a target company with which to merge or to acquire, at that point in time, they then do a pipe, which stands for a private investment in a public entity, to raise capital to backstop or provide an insurance against the money which is in cash and trust held by the IPO investors in order to ensure that that money remains. And I'll say this one last very quick thing about sort of the underside of SPACs. So, who invested SPACs? IPOs. The vast majority of investors in SPAC. IPOs are in fact hedge funds and hedge funds invest in SPAC IPOs because they realize that it's a free call option and hedge funds are very smart people but honestly they're not that much smarter than anyone else so I would encourage any investor even retail investors to look into investing in SPAC IPOs because if you have a right to get your money back and you're able to get a treasure return and you're able to keep the warrants or the rights which are associated with a SPAC IPO. So you're able to get an upside that's separate, then that's a very attractive investment. And that's why hedge funds invest in them. But they're short-term focused and they want to get their capital back. On the other side, you have a bunch of fundamental long-only investors who are looking for product. Remember, I mentioned that the number of publicly traded companies has fallen while the amount of money going into publicly traded companies has increased substantially. You have a large number of firms, the Fidelities, the Vanguards, the Wellingtons of the world, which want publicly traded companies. So they don't like SPACs because SPACs, we don't know what the company is, but we certainly like the business combination that SPACs are associated with. And what we've seen recently is the number of firms investing in pipes to help bridge that gap. So take out the short-term hedge fund investors and to bring in long-term fundamental investors and we've seen a big change in that regard.
1: So I think we have a better understanding of kind of the pros, maybe some of the cons, the vehicle, the process. But given how accelerated the SPAC universe has become, how do you advise people to differentiate between different management teams and different SPAC opportunities?
2: That's a great question. So one of the factors that has that's changed a lot, literally in the past two or three years is, I mean, I'll use the example of Robinhood. So Robinhood is obviously a, a mechanism for the retail investor to participate in a, in a very cost-effective way in the public markets. And I, I don't know the exact number, but it's in the tens of millions of members of Robinhood and many of those members have invested in stacks, which has been a big, big change from the past, where it was largely institutional, closed community with investors in SPACs. And what has happened is that those institutional investors, which is great, and I would encourage individuals to participate in SPACs, but just be aware that you have a right to get your money back and that you should exercise that right if you think the deal is a bad deal. If you think it's a good deal, then you should stay in. If you think it's a bad deal, then you shouldn't stay in. So investors have three points in which they can participate in SPACs. One is investing in the sponsor groups. That's not really available to retail investors, or firm navigation capital offers that to retail investors. So if there are people who are interested and institutional investors, then that's something that we do. But that's typically not available. And as I said, on a risk-adjusted basis, that's actually probably the highest-returning category. The second category is investing in the SPAC IPOs that is available to all investors, including retail investors. And let me just quickly give you some statistics. So Bloomberg recently did an article where they indicated that SPACs that went public in 2019 were up by 14.53% to date, and this was around the end of July, while this, this year's SPAC IPOs were up around 11% so far. Now for comparison, the return for the S&P 500 over that period was 1.4%, and the one-year return for the S&P was 5.4%. So SPAC IPOs for retail investors, which are available to everyone through Robinhood and Verisada sites, if you're to your broker and say, how do I invest in, in, in SPACs, so far this year have been up on the order of anywhere from five to 10 times the return that you've gotten from the S&P. Now, is that going to continue in the future? We don't know. I'm just giving you what the the statistics are uh, so far. The third area to participate in SPACs is in that pipe that I mentioned, which is a great area to invest because you're able to structure a deal. Unfortunately, that's not really available to our retail investors. It's more available to institutional investors like Navigation. And so obviously we offer that to our investors who participate with us. So sponsoring SPACs, not available to retail investors for the most part, Investing in pipes not available to retail investors for the most part. And both of those are very attractive returns. The one that is available, which is a very attractive category, is investing in a SPAC IPO. Again, I encourage, and I'm very comfortable encouraging investors to invest in SPAC IPOs because they have the right to get their money back as long as they recognize that right and they exercise that right. So if it makes sense to redeem, and by the way, this is the last sort of little tip I'll give here. There's a good way in which to know whether to redeem or not. So when SPACs go out there to raise capital and they're looking for a company, you as a retail investor participate in units at $10 a unit. With that unit, you get warrants. Sometimes you get rights, typically a half a warrant. And you have a share and you have a right to get your money back plus treasuries. When the company, the SPAC identifies a target, to merge with or to buy the business combination, they have to announce it to the world. When they announce it, the market will price that announcement. And that price will typically mean the price goes up or the price goes down. One good thing to do is if at the announcement, before you have the right, whether you take your money back or not, if you're a retail investor in a SPAC, then you should say, well, if the price goes up, then that means the market thinks it's a good idea. Maybe I'll stay in. And by the way, you can probably sell fairly quickly and you can make a short-term return or you could stay for a long time to hope that it goes up even further. If the price goes down, you're like, "Eh, I don't like that idea. You know what? I'm going to take my money back. In that regard, if you're thoughtful in that way and you're actually active in looking at the stock price after an announcement is made in a SPAC, it's actually a fantastic mechanism for generating outsized returns, certainly versus treasuries etc because you are able to keep if you redeem if you take your money back you're able to keep your warrants and those warrants trade separately from the shares so you can sell the warrants and generate a return or you can keep the warrants hoping that they'll go up in the future and there have been hedge funds and other individual investors who have made very very high 20 30 40% type returns investing through those to that strategy
1: and what type of dollar figures are we talking about here? I mean, what is the average SPAC IPO? Do they bring on more equity? In, if they do bring on a pipe transaction, what does that number look like? And ultimately, you know, what is the capitalization of that company you know, in that two-year
2: period? Sure. So let's start with the average size of the IPO. How much money do people raise? So historically, one of the reasons that SPACs were not that favored is that they were very small. In 2003, the average size of a SPAC IPO was $24 million. Very, very small. And for between 2003 and 2007, the average was below $100 million. Okay? Uh, Over the past five years, the average SPAC IPO has been over $200 million. Last year, in 2019, it was $230 million. And so far this year, in 2020, it's not... 250, it's not 270, it's not 300, it's not 320, it's not 350, it's 380 million dollars is the average IPO of a SPAC. So the size of SPAC IPOs has jumped dramatically over the past 20 or 30 years. And literally just in the past year, it it has almost doubled. Uh, So the size of IPOs is very high. Now, what is the size of the companies that SPACs buy? So historically, the ratio has been typically between three and five times the amount raised. So if a SPAC raised $100 million, they would buy a company with an enterprise value of between $300 million and $500 million, three to five times the amount raised. What we have seen recently is that this number is beginning to inch up. So just last week, the largest SPAC Transaction ever in history. And we're going to see lots of these, the first ever, the largest ever going forward because SPACs are still in their early stages, as I said. So, a firm called United Wholesale Mortgage, a private company, agreed to merge with a SPAC, Gore's SPAC, SPAC number five or six, I think. And that entity has an enterprise value of $16 billion. So, that's the largest deal ever. Before that, it was a company called Multiplan which was 11 billion. So the record just a few weeks ago was 11 billion. Yeah. Then that record was just eclipsed last week at 16 billion. And the SPAC, the core SPAC at $450 million. So the multiple of the enterprise value of the transaction versus the amount of money raised is beginning to increase. And in some ways, that's a good thing because the larger the company, all else being equal, the more safe it is, etc. cetera. So no guarantees, obviously. But the fact that larger companies are thinking of merging with SPACs is a very good thing. And as you probably saw yesterday, Playboy decided to merge with a SPAC. And interestingly, they have an all-male board, so which is... Uh, Shocking.
1: Shocking. Shocking. So maybe to piggyback on top of that... Are there trend lines that you see in terms of specific industries that SPACs seem to gravitate towards? Are there better opportunities within certain industries that you personally believe in? I mean, how does navigation think about that?
2: Sure. So, so SPACs can really occur in almost any industry. The industries that have been most in favor have been industries like energy, financial services, distribution, business services, TMT, technology, media, uh, and telecommunications. And the key feature of those industries, healthcare has been a big space as well, is that they are very large industries with substantial fragmentation, so opportunities for consolidation, where there are multiple targets. Because one very important feature of SPACs, uh, which I probably should have said at the beginning, is that if you do a SPAC i.e. you sponsor a company to raise capital to then go and buy an operating company, you cannot know the company you're going to buy ahead of time. So that's one of the restrictions on SPAC. The only other restriction, by the way, is that you must invest in in a company that 80% of the market value of the amount of money that you raise is the value of the company that you buy. So you can't use a SPAC and buy a You know, a lemonade stand from someone. Those are the only two restrictions. But because of those restrictions, and people are raising on average $380 million in in 2020, you have to buy bigger companies and you have to invest in industries where there are multiple targets. If you have too niche focused an industry, then there are not that many targets and you can't identify what the comps are. So most mainstream industries are areas that SPACs are focused on. Within navigation, We have a specialization in financial services, specialty finance, in fintech, in certain areas of business services, in TMT or first back was in the TMT space, technology, media, and telecommunications. We bought a company in Houston, Texas called Computex, and then we subsequently announced that we're buying a company called Candy Communications, which is the arm of a publicly traded company called Ribbon. So that's a space that we're attracted to. Infrastructure is an attractive space for us. So, those are some of the areas that we're focused on. But we are less focused on industry than we are about backing good management teams and sponsoring SPAC IPOs to then go and buy companies.
1: And what is the alignment with that acquisition management team and current shareholder equity holders with the SPAC that is acquiring them? How does that work
2: post transaction? So, typically, The owners of a private company that wants to merge with a SPAC or be bought by a SPAC, they're looking for liquidity. They're looking for that higher valuation associated with publicly traded companies. As a general principle, all else being equal, publicly traded companies trade at a higher multiple than private companies, primarily because of that liquidity premium. So they're looking for that. Uh, They're looking for the ability to have more say in a company going forward, because if you're involved as an executive in a public-traded company, you're not working for a private equity firm, et cetera. And so there's actually a very attractive opportunity for management teams who merge into SPACs or are acquired by SPACs because they're able to participate in a management option pool, which is typically at a higher valuation, and very importantly, has more liquidity. So they are able, now there's still some vesting, so they still have to stay for a while, but now they have publicly traded stock. They're not subject to the whims and fancy of a private equity owner or of a management team that may be capricious. They're participating in very attractive management option pools, and those can work out to be very, very lucrative for many management teams. So we would argue, and I believe this is empirically the case, that there is greater value there's a much better opportunity for management teams merging into a SPAC than in a private equity firm and potentially even in a in a traditional IPO and so
1: how narrowly defined is the the target acquisition company when you when you all raise a specific SPAC IPO or how Tightly delineated is that target for you all in terms of you're only going after one sector, this size company, this type of management team. I'm just trying to think about if an individual or a family was going to invest with you, you know, it's not a blind pool per se. So I assume that you've got some kind of prospectus or something that you can offer up to people in order to identify potential
2: opportunities? That's right. So our approach is to be very sectors-focused, identify with our management team some potential because we can't identify the specific targets, but we identify universal targets. We do research on those targets. We can't speak to them beforehand. And then once we do the IPO, we go and, and we speak to those targets and we rank them and we try to do it in a very efficient, focused manner. Now... You know, one of the questions that was raised by Nicholas, he asked this question, he's surprised more firms don't do multiple acquisitions. It's very hard to do multiple acquisitions. Buying one company or merging with one company is very hard. Buying two companies or three companies or four companies is exponentially harder. It's not one plus one plus one equals three. It's one to the power of six or seven because putting together different cultures is very, very, very difficult. And just to explain about how we buy larger companies, which I alluded to earlier, uh, Dennis Mons asked this question. The way that we look at it is we want to find a company that's multiples of the amount that we raised. And how do we do that? We do that in a couple of ways. One, as you mentioned, Brian, which is a good point, is we can put debt on the company. But typically, we try to avoid that. The better way to do that is by asking the seller to roll their equity in the deal. So let me give you an example. There's a firm called Capital Acquisition, which is a SPAC that raised $300 million. And they then approached a private equity firm known as GTCR and said to GTCR, you guys have a a portfolio company, which is very highly leveled, called CISION, C-I-S-I-O-N, which is a public relations firm. And they went to CISION and said, CISION, we would like to merge with you. And you are very highly leveled. They had about six times EBITDA in debt. And they said, we will use our cash in trust, or $300 million, to reduce your debt and pay transaction expenses. And that's what they did. And as a result of that, a $300 million SPAC acquired a $2.5, 2600000000 billion company simply by GTCR rolling their equity into the deal. So GTCR reduced their ownership from close to 100% to probably about 60 or 70%. The management team got some, and the owners of the SPAC got some ownership in that company. But no, so they're basically the, the investors in the SPAC are now participants and minority owners in a publicly traded company, which is a very good company decision with less debt because the money went down. So that's the single best way in which to buy larger companies. And so what we look for at Navigation are highly levered portfolio companies or private equity firms where we can reduce the leverage. That's very attractive. We're also looking for private companies that have great growth potential, need capital to facilitate growth, but need it in a hurry. So doing an IPO will take too long, right? So there are these subsets of companies where we focus our efforts on, which are not necessarily industry focused.
1: So another couple of questions here. We've got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to try to address some of these questions. Some of them are kind of layered on top of each other, but the same topic. In your experience, there's that two-year window, right? where the SPAC has to acquire a company. True or false, during that two-year period, there's no liquidity options for investors in the SPAC IPO.
2: Is that right? No, that's actually incorrect. So if you've invested in a SPAC IPO, you own a publicly traded company. So you can decide to sell your shares at any time. That's one of the very big advantages of SPACs. They're publicly traded securities. Unlike private equity, where you're restricted... You can't sell your shares. There's no liquidity. There is a lot of liquidity available. And in fact, there's more layers of liquidity because if you invest in the IPO, you have shares, as I said, through the units, and you have warrants. The warrants trade separately from the shares. So you can sell the warrants and keep the shares. You can sell the shares and keep the warrants. There are various permutations. As sell your warrants, keep your shares. Sell your shares, keep your warrants. There you are various options available to you.
1: Got it. And so I think also helpful, our network are mostly individuals and family offices and, you know, accredited investors. In your opinion, what is the best way to access this opportunity?
2: So listen, if you're a family office or accredited investor, speak to your broker and ask, how can I participate in a, in a SPAC IPO? They will be able to tell you. It's not that easy to get into SPAC IPOs, but given the increase in popularity, It is available. If anyone is interested in in, in navigation, just reach out to our website. dot navigationcapital.com. My email, I'll I'll post in this. Anyone can reach out to me. We'd be glad to to speak with you more about SPACs.
1: And obviously, you're very involved in this industry and the space right now, and there's a lot going on. You feel confident that there's plenty of deal flow out there and acquisition opportunities for all these SPAC IPOs that are popping up?
2: Yeah, so the way that I think about it is there are three million companies in the United States, private companies and public companies, which a small percentage are are private. There's four trillion dollars in private equity that is available to invest, of which two two trillion is invested, two trillion is uninvested is dry powder. SPACs represent fifty billion, so you know, less than you know, a, a small fraction of the amount available in private equity. So I believe there is a very long and wide runway, especially because these private equity firms which are heavily levered, as I said, there are about 8,000 private equity backed portfolio companies, many of which are highly leveled, which are looking for exits. I think SPACs are a perfect mechanism for them to exit. So we think there is a long, wide runway of SPACs going forward. And by the way, that's not my view. That is the view which is shared by Stacey Cunningham, who is the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, who we're partnered with. She was actually the one who came up with the name SPAC in the box. That's a view that's shared by Joshua Harris, who just two days ago on CNBC, uh, Apollo launched a $750 million SPAC. Josh Harris is a co-founder with Leon Black of Apollo. He said SPACs are here and they're here to stay. Stacy said SPACs are here and, and they're here to stay. That's not just me saying this. <laughs> this is many other smart, thoughtful people. And then quite frankly, this is what the data says.
1: Yeah. So I am kind of curious, what are your thoughts about the, the SPAC ETF space? Is, is that a good way for retail investors to access the opportunity set? It,
2: it, it is a good way. Unfortunately, there's only one SPAC ETF here. Uh, it's not or SPAC ETF. You can look it up. The ticker is SPAK and you can look at them. So there's some free publicity for them. But we'll be bringing a SPAC, to the market, a SPAC ETF to the market soon. Um, and so when that's done, that's another way. But yes, I would encourage people to invest in, in a SPAC ETF. Quite frankly, and again, I'm going to argue against my, my own self-interest here, but I think investors are better off just investing. If you, if you want to invest in a SPAC IPO, you're better off investing in a SPAC IPO yourself. Because the nice thing is you have the right to get your money back. There is a a great tell as to whether you should get your money back or not. And that's how the the market prices the transaction. In, In my mind, every investor, I don't care what your risk profile is. I don't care what your, you know, the amount of money you have, et cetera, unless you need liquidity immediately. And even if you do, you can sell the shares you know, should be invested in SPAC IPOs. It's, it really is, I believe, the single best risk-adjusted investment that you can make of any investment category, right? Simply because of that feature that you're right to get your money back. So if things go wrong, something goes wrong. And by the way, the number of people in SPACs were founded in 1993 to the present, the number of people who have invested in a SPAC IPO Money was placed in trust who never got their money back if they wanted it is exactly zero. So, no, I can't predict that that won't change in the future. But for the most part, third-party managed trusts are inviolate and have proven to be inviolate. So when you say risk on a risk-adjusted basis, the risk really, if you invest in a SPAC IPO and decide to take your money back, the risk really is zero.
1: And as we're wrapping up here, what is the value proposition that Navigation has versus others in the marketplace?
2: You know, our approach is that we offer investors the opportunity to participate in the sponsor strategy, which are not typically offered to our retail investors. We offer the opportunity to participate in the pipe approach of the back end of SPACs, which again are typically not available to retail investors. So, one big opportunity is access to. Certain strategies which are not available, obviously, the the strategy of investing in SPAC IPOs is available. One nice thing is we do all three strategies, so we give you a blended return, so we offer greater diversification in that regard by strategy. And because we invest in multiple IPOs, we provide some greater diversification. And as I said earlier, we have this relationship with the New York Stock Exchange. We've we've created a SPAC-in-the-box approach where a SPAC-in-the-box makes it easier quicker, simpler, and provides more certainty and increased likelihood of success of SPACs by partnering with us. So we think that we offer you sort of inside access to what we think are gonna be superior uh, risk-adjusted returns by partnering with us. And, and we've, been, we've been there, done that. You know, we're not people who are like, oh, SPACs look good and we should get into this space. I've been talking about SPACs for the past five years. And many people looked at me like, you know, I, I I was a crazy guy. But the good news is now, finally, the market has caught up and understood the power of SPACs, which is great. So it's much easier to speak about it. But we've been there, done that, understand it, made every mistake that could be made in doing our own SPAC and avoided many of the mistakes that many other people would have made, uh, ended up doing very well on our SPAC. And we think we can leverage our skill set or knowledge of the market and the intricacies and nuances of the market others who are interested.
1: That's great. Well, we've got about five, but now four minutes left. Are there any specific questions that you want to address? We, we won't be able to get to everything. I will say that if you're interested in speaking with David directly, he did leave his email address on the chat line. You can also reach out to me and I'm happy to facilitate an introduction and provide his contact information. But David, this has been terrific. A lot of this is over my head, but it's been really helpful because you see these headlines and it can be very confusing, I think, even for folks that kind of know the IPO private equity space. Are there any you know, specific questions that you want to address We still have the floor or any closing comments?
2: I'm looking at the questions. And one of the questions that I asked about is liquidity. Well, you're a publicly traded company, so there is liquidity. But there is an important point about a lockup period. If you're a sponsor of a SPAC, there's typically a one-year lockup period post-business combination. So there's some illiquidity in that regard. But if you're an investor in just the traditional SPAC uh, IPO, you can sell your stock at any time. A question was asked about what criteria in looking at a specific SPAC. Uh, I would say that because if you invest in a SPAC IPO, you have the ability to get your money back. You should be less concerned about the criteria, but you want to look at the quality of the sponsor team, their ability to attract deal flow. And very importantly, when the deal is announced, once they announce the deal, you want to look at what the market says. So that's uh, not too much work involved in that. There are some questions about uh, ESG investing by David Carlson. Uh, that's an interesting space. Increasingly, people are bringing different areas. Again, the nice thing about SPAC IPO is that you have the ability to take your money back. So if it looks like it makes sense, then do it. <laughs> if not, don't do it. What is the leading source of investment funds in SPACs? I've answered that earlier, but the primary investors in SPACs are hedge funds, but that percentage is decreasing very quickly over time and more institutional players are becoming involved in SPACs. Can you go over the need for SPACs to spend what they've raised one more time? So they must spend, just to be clear on this, when they buy an entity the value of the entity that they buy must be at least 80 percent in terms of fair market value of the cash that they have in trust so if they raise 300 hundred million dollars they must buy an entity that's worth 80 million you can't take the hundred million and buy a two million entity right or five million or 50 million it has to be 80 million
1: only domestic companies or nope. international that's interesting
2: there you can buy international companies mm-hmm. there's no restriction on geography in fact some of them there have been some very successful SPACs internationally, particularly in China. Uh, one issue that Steve mentioned is the dilution. So, what I mentioned earlier, there was risk. There is closing risk because for a sponsor, because they have to find a the deal, there is redemption risk that investors take their money back, and there's also valuation risk or dilution risk, which is that because the sponsor gets twenty percent, even though the stock is at ten dollars, it's really worth only eight dollars. And the way to overcome that dilution risk is by finding a good company with a good future projection. One advantage of SPACs is that SPACs, unlike traditional IPOs, can actually publish their financial projections. So we can say here are five year projections. A traditional IPO can't do that. And so because you're able to suggest your projections, and because typically publicly traded companies trade at a higher multiple than private companies, you're able to overcome that dilution. But it is a risk for sponsors. And what several sponsors have done is they've had to either give up some of their promote or extinguish some of their promote. Thankfully, we, were, we didn't have to do that when we did our SPAC, and I would encourage sponsors not to do that. The worst case scenario, which we didn't do, is to say we will put our promote into an earnout based on the stock price. So as the stock price goes up, then we're able to get our promote. But again, that's the advantage of having a firm and working with a firm that knows the intricacies and the nuances and knows how to negotiate all of these different levels.
1: Well, we are at the hour mark, and I can't thank you enough. This has been tremendous. This is far and away the most attended webinar we've ever done and very topical, obviously, with everything going on in SPAC land today. So David, thank you so much for the time and you're just a tremendous resource. I We didn't get to all the questions. I encourage people to reach out directly me or David and we're happy to kind of facilitate introductions. Thank you for the time on a Friday and I hope you have a wonderful weekend.
2: Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thanks a okay. lot. So Appreciate it.